So with that, let's go to uh, the scriptures. We're going to be this morning in John chapter 10, starting at verse 22. I encourage you to turn there. We're going to be looking at another Jewish feast today, but this one is uh, much different than any of the other ones in the New Testament, and we'll talk about why. And again, Jesus is interacting with uh, the Jewish leadership here, and we'll learn a lot from what he says to them. Before we do that, let me quickly again pray over the word. Father, just open your word to us. Um, Open your truth to us and guide us in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, as I read this text, it reminded me of a trip that I took uh, my senior year in high school or the summer after my senior year in high school, uh, my youth group and I, we, well, it was my youth group and like all the state youth groups in Missouri of the Church of God, this group that I was a part of, we went out to Phoenix, Arizona, which was a really long trip from southeast Missouri. So we took three chartered buses and we did all these little stops along the way. The whole goal of going out there was to visit some conference or something, which I vaguely remember. But I do remember all the different places we stopped. And one of the places we stopped was a place called Six Flags over Texas. You guys are familiar with Six Flags. And so we were there, and we there's all these different rides there. But one ride that continued to catch my eye was not really a ride at all. It was these two giant steel things coming up out of the ground, like big TV rabbit ears, if you know what those are. And these cables that kind of went down, and there was people, and they were attached to the cable, and they would swing. I was like, I want to do that. So... This isn't a typical ride either in that you can't just wait in line and get on. You have to actually pay 50 bucks. And it was just me and another one of my friends who wanted to do it. And we're like, oh, 25 is a little steep. And so we actually just went out into the crowd of people we did not know and found someone to, to go with us. And it was like we were both, he's about my size. And, and then we got this dude that was short and small statured. And, uh, and the way it works is they put you in this basically like a bag that's Velcroed in and you're all really tight. And we, we wanted this, this dude that we didn't know to be in between us. And so if you can imagine two guys that are like six foot over 200 pounds. And this little guy who was probably five foot, nothing, a hundred, nothing in between us that we didn't know, but he was just excited and he helped us pay for the $50. So anyway, and so they, they basically say they strap you in those Velcro bag and they said, we're going to host you up about 150 feet. And we're going to drop you, and then the cables are going to catch you, and you're just going to swing for like three or four minutes. Which sounded really cool, and looked really cool, until they actually started lifting us up off the ground. And, and gravity caught me, and I was being held on by, I didn't, I didn't know, I, didn't, I never looked at the little chain or anything, so that scared me too. And so I knew that there was really nothing below us but our, but our peril. And we were bound up together with this stranger that we didn't even know, and we didn't... We weren't talking. None of us were talking. It was kind of a strange situation. But they just told us that when we hit the top, the moment that we hit the top, we would be cut loose, and we would drop, and then we would swing. And so we were going up so imperceptibly slow. I don't know if you've ever been on these drop rides, but you, if you're looking at it, you can see it going up, but if you're sitting on it, you can't feel it moving. And there's nothing to gauge it off of because you're 300 feet in the air and there's nothing else up there. And so... You can't figure out where you're going or how fast you're going, but I 
I couldn't feel if we had stopped or what was going on. I just knew that when we hit the top, I knew what he meant by the bottom dropping out because it did. And we just dropped straight down. It's kind of a crazy feeling. And so the last time we were together as a group, we talked about the Jewish leadership and how they failed their people and how Jesus had come to bring his sheep home. And Jesus talked about being the good shepherd, even those sheep that were not of the, the fold currently, he was going to bring them in. Who is that? That's us. Not Jewish people, but his people that he came to save. And there are still some that are not of this fold currently that are still being called in even today. And so in today's passage, we're going to see another sacred feast going on. This isn't one that's prescribed in the Old Testament, actually, but just from another time in Jewish history during the intertestamental period. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But this feast is actually another reminder of the failure of the Jewish leadership and the goodness and mercy of God through it all. And so the continual struggles of Israel through those, I think we can see a lot of our own struggles even, and our, and our own trials, and the trials of the lost who are lost without a shepherd at all. And so today's passage, we're going to look at, we're going to get some insightful uh, looks into Jesus' ministry. We're going to see how he sets this right, and we're going to see how he continues to use his people today to continue to make that right. And so we're going to look at three main ideas, Jesus coming as the good shepherd, the failure of the Jewish shepherds, and then the calling of God's people today. And so with that, let's look at the text, John 10. 22 through 42, let's stand together as we read God's Word. John 10, 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. 
He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So a little bit of background. This is the Feast of Dedication, also called the Festival of Lights by Josephus, and today it is known as Hanukkah. And so this celebrates the rededication of the temple after the desecration of it by the, by the hands of a man named or known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a Seleucid Greek king, and he desecrated the altar of the temple by sacrificing a pig on it. Of course, if you're Jewish, that's horrible. It's anathema. And so he desecrated the entire temple by taking a pig in there and shedding its blood all over the place as an act of, as an act of mockery and desecration. And so then you have this hero in Jewish culture, not in scripture, uh, by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And he comes in, he leads a revolt, and he takes back the temple from the Greek influence and the Greek polytheism and leads an effort then to rededicate that temple. And this begins this eight-day ceremony and party to reconsecrate the temple and return it to its former glory. And so that's what Hanukkah is about. It's a celebration of that time. And so even here in New Testament times, the Jewish people are celebrating that. But this isn't a this isn't a feast that's prescribed by the Old Testament. But you would actually find this in like the apocryphal works in Maccabees one and two, which are fine to read, but they're not scripture. And so again, still celebrated today, even by nominal Jews, Jewish people who don't go to temple or anything else, will celebrate Hanukkah as a part of who they are. And so this feast is a backdrop for what's going on here. Jesus is there, of course, and it's winter. The text tells us. And the Greek word here for winter would actually denote like some sort of winter storm. And so this is why it's taking place indoors, this interaction, part of Solomon's temples. I think a lot of times when I read the New Testament, I rarely ever picture things going on inside. But this is going on indoors. And so this is a really close quarters interaction, and it gets fairly heated. Jesus rarely has a nice chat with the Jewish leadership. They don't come to just check and see how he's doing. They're always trying to figure out who he is and, and what he's doing there and then trying to kill him shortly thereafter. Uh, nothing but harsh words for the Jewish leadership because of their continued unbelief. They are hardened by it. They are hardened in their unbelief. And this concept of unbelief, again, continues to come around in this book. And I think it's for us to understand that those of us who do believe, helps us to understand that we, and never forget that we live in a world that is constantly in this state of unbelief. As believers, we see the world through a different set of lenses. When I read Jesus constantly being questioned by the leadership, are you the Christ? I'm like, these people are crazy. He's told them that he is. But they don't see it that way. They don't see him telling them anything. They see him speaking in vagaries. Because to them, they're unable to understand anything that he's saying because they're unbelievers. And it's, I think, a lot of times for us as believers, 
it's easy to get jaded by what we see the unbelievers doing. And we need to be careful in that. Because it's no easy task to do ministry in a world that is full of unbelievers. And so our ministries in this world should largely depend on us being able to balance living as redeemed people, but yet living in a world that is dying. Yet all the while, preaching redemption to a world that can't understand it without the intervention of our Lord. And I think this passage gives us a great deal of hope in that effort. And even in our own hearts as we struggle. We worship a resurrected Lord who has victory over sin and victory over death. And here in this passage, we see him encouraging us to that end. And so with that, we see Jesus coming as the good shepherd. Again, the the leadership say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And again, to me, Jesus has been very clear on this in the past. He has told them plainly. But it continues to be unclear to them. Because what does he say? I told you, and you did not believe. The works I do bear witness. But you can't see them. Why can't you see them? You're not my sheep. What has Jesus done? What are the works that Jesus does? Everything the Old Testament said he would do. right? And we've read these over and over. Isaiah 29, 35, 42, 61. Basically, the whole book of Isaiah talks about this man that would come and do these great works. Turn with me to Psalm 147. I want to read another one for you. We can't have enough of these references to talk about the works that Jesus was prophesied to do from the Old Testament. And you can't read very far from one place to the next without getting another one. Psalm 147. Again, see this as a prophecy of what Jesus came to do. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to God, for it is pleasant to sing a song of praise, is, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. I love that. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Who is that? That's us. But yet the very next sentence What else does he do? Determines the number of the stars and gives them all names. The same one who knows our broken hearts knows every single name of every one of the multi-infinite trillions of stars that are out there. That's incredible. The one who is there having a conversation with dense-headed Jewish leaderships is also making sure simultaneously that those stars stay in place. And yet he binds up our wounds. He heals our broken hearts. It's pretty incredible. These are the works of the Lord. And we see him doing that all throughout the New Testament. 
as he gives sight to the blind, as he heals the lame, as he rises or as he raises the dead to life. And so those who say that the Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled is just a coincidence. I know I've heard this and probably too. A coincidence that the blind receive sight? Did it just accidentally happen that someone who was born blind can see now? Was it, did it just accidentally happen that someone who was de- demonically possessed is no longer that way or was no longer that way and that the demons went into some pigs and fell off a cliff? Was that random? Was that just a coincidence? Did it just so happen that this one man was going to be born and everything just coincidentally was about him? I don't think so. That takes a lot more faith than what I believe. These are acts of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and they're no mere coincidence. They show his legitimacy, they show the legitimacy of his ministry, and the threefold office that we've been talking about in Sunday school, prophet, priest, and king. He is here to proclaim freedom, prophet, to purchase it with his own blood, priest, and he is able to carry it out, king. But again, we see it. Because it's plain. The lost world can't, because they're dead in their sins. Only those who hear the voice of God calling them will be woken up from this death, will be brought to life. Jesus alludes to this. What does he say? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I love what he says next of his sheep. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Consider this, hearing this through the ears of a Jewish person living in the first century. You mean that Jesus, our Messiah, will make it to where that we'll have no more Babylonians or Syrians or Greeks or Seleucids or Romans or anyone else that's ever going to come in and take us over? No one's ever going to take us away from our God anymore. Well, how can he do that? Because we have to be here in Jerusalem, right? No. Because Jesus Christ makes it possible. Because access to God is no longer going to require a temple and sacrifices. Because Jesus is the embodiment of all of that. And he will no longer inhabit just the Holy of Holies. And the priest goes in once a year to see him. He will inhabit the heart's in the minds of all who believe. Remember Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit within you. Jeremiah 31. He will write the law on our hearts and he will always be our God. And just in case we were wondering, just in case that wasn't clear to us, he goes on in 29. He continues the same thought. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one can snatch them away. He is the Good Shepherd. We are His. We are His forever. No one can snatch us away. No human, no evil spirit, or the most evil, Satan. We can't even snatch ourselves away. He keeps. Those things that are his. Remember John 6. What did Jesus say? Everyone whom the Father gives to him 
he will rise up on the last day. He has every intention to keep every single one of his children. Remember the parable of the lost sheep. What does he do when one of them goes away? He goes and gets it. He does not allow that sheep to wander away, but he goes and finds it. Therefore, anyone who says, I used to be a Christian, my answer to them is, no, you weren't. There's no use to be a Christian. There's no such thing. Jesus does not lose his people. He keeps them always. The sovereign of the universe who can save his people from their sins, and he saves every one of them, they hear his voice, and they are rescued. One that walks away, or says they walk away, never heard the voice of the master to begin with. They heard another voice, and they follow it. This doctrine of eternal security, in my mind, is essential to sound biblical doctrine, because saying one can lose their salvation makes God out to be a liar, which he's not. If someone can lose their salvation, then Jesus told a lie right here. These words are not true. We know that he didn't. So perhaps then man isn't as sovereign as he thought he was. The promise of the Lord is unlike anything that the world can offer. We can get snatched away from any other would-be savior in the world. Because they all are inadequate. They leave us wanting. We flounder around. Or if you want to think of it like this, we fall straight down like three people in a Velcro bag on the dragon's wing. Straight down. Nothing to grab a hold of. Brothers and sisters, cling to the Lord. But take heart. Even when you aren't, he's clinging hard to you. I love the line of this, this hymn. We all know this hymn. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all resonate when we sing that song. We all get that. But here, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You can't sing that hymn if you believe that that's possible that you can lose that salvation which you've given, been given. We are all prone to wonder, and we all grab a hold of anything else that seems firm sometimes when we're falling. But ultimately, our Lord Jesus Christ has us. He bought our redemption on the cross. He gave us victory over our enemies when he walked out of the tomb. We are his, and nothing can change that. We should rejoice in that. And I think that the contrast here brings us to the next point of the failure of the Jewish leaders. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Not to say that they are the same person, but Jesus is saying, what he is saying is that the Father is God, I am God. Deuteronomy 6, you guys know this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Jewish people knew that. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. What did they do? They picked up stones to stone him because of his blasphemy. Again, because of their unbelief. And Jesus responds, 
I love his response. Which good work are you going to kill me for? Which one of the good things that I've done are you going to kill me for now? This is a stab at the leaders, but they don't know it yet. But he's about to get to it. He's going to build his argument using his next statement from Psalm 82. So turn with me to Psalm 82. And again, remember the function of the Jewish leaders. What were they to do? They were to lead their people. And Jerusalem hasn't had an easy time because of their own indiscretion. But their own indiscretion is because their leaders were horrible as well. And so look, he says, I said, you are gods. Where did he get this from? Well, in the Psalms, in Psalm 82, this refers to the leaders of the people as gods, as sovereigns over the people. And so let me read this psalm here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And so again, this is, this is the Lord talking about the Jewish leadership. Give justice. This is his command to the leader. This is what they should do. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. But then what is his accusation of the leadership? They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So he called them gods, obviously not in the ultimate sense, but in the sense that they have power, authority, they're, they're responsible for their people. They were not to treat them, or they were to treat them fairly. They were to deliver them from their enemies, all of which they fail at, all of which Jesus ultimately fulfills. Jesus comes, again, as the Son of God, the Son of God, fulfills what the leaders should have been doing and ultimately what they were incapable of doing. Jesus says, if I'm not doing this, then don't believe me, but believe the works instead, that you may believe that the Father and I are one. They picked up stones to stone. They attempted to arrest him. And again, I think this points to the ultimate inability of any other source to lead us or guide us. The Lord appointed leaders over the people to lead them, but they would fall away and the people would scatter. Jesus comes to call them back, all those who were scattered, to call them back, just like the sheep to lead them, and to lead them into eternity. It's the same for us today. Consider what we have going on today. The church is the gathering of Jesus' one people, and we have his word to guide us, and he has appointed leaders to guide us. And so that leads us to our next point, the calling for his people today. Look at verse 40 through 42. So Jesus went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing, 
at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Everything that John said about this man was true. What did John say? John proclaimed the promises from the Old Testament about the works of Jesus Christ. They are true. John said, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That is true. Many believed in him there because they saw the works of the Lord. So what then shall we do? What do we proclaim? We proclaim the works of the Lord. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ultimate work of the Lord. Not only those that we read in Scripture, yes, absolutely, Scripture is our ultimate authority, but we can proclaim even the works that he's doing in our own lives, and we should be proclaiming those works, which are just pictures of what he's done in Scripture and what he's still doing. Binding up the brokenhearted, freeing the captives. Hopefully we can all relate with this as believers. We can all relate with this feeling of free-falling, trying to grab a hold of something. Maybe some sort of life circumstance or something else has us feeling helpless, like you're strapped together with two other people and you're just falling. We know that feeling. I mean, to finish my story, I'm still here, so obviously the, the rope caught. We dropped and it seemed like forever. It was kind of a crazy thing, but it was probably less than two seconds. It was kind of one of those time-stand-still moments. Free-falling, free-falling, thought I was going to die. And then all of a sudden, the cables caught, and we got the swing, and it was really cool. And then they brought us down because, well, the swing stops, and then you're just hanging there 150 feet over the ground. So it was, it was kind of nice to be brought down at that point. But the point of that is that in Christ, sometimes... Even in Christ, even as Christians, we feel like we are free-falling. But we never do. Because he has us. Any falling that we do, he has us. Any falling that we do is something that is part of his will for our lives. So what greater message do we have for a lost world that is continually lied to by their leaders? continually lied to by the idols that they serve, that there was one who not only died to set you free from your sin, which you deserve hell for, but he will also keep you in his hands forever. Nothing can happen to you outside of his good decree for your life. And when you leave this earth, you'll be with him forever. That's the message that we have. That's for us to cling to as believers, but it's also for a dying world that has nothing. And so let us never fail to share this message. It should, it should flavor all of our interactions with other people. It should change the way that we think. It should change the way that we act. It should change the way that we talk to people. We should see ourselves as those who also give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and give to those who are needy. We should see ourselves as those people who are doing the work of Christ. And what does the Scriptures call us? And we'll close. What does the Scriptures call us? 
Christ's ambassadors here on this earth, doing the works that he did. So let us, brothers and sisters, act as he did for his sake and for the sake of those who are dying. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the promise that you will never let us go. And the most prominent force attempting to leave is our own wandering hearts. But yet, despite our wandering hearts, you keep a close grip on us. And we're unable to run away from you. And we thank you for that. Because we are so desperate sometimes to run. So we thank you, Lord, that you keep us tight, that you keep us close. Lord, help us to, to not want to run away. Help us to want to cling to you. That that will help us more and more in our ministry as we share the gospel. The more that we cling to you, the more we will want to tell others of the hope that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.